That was a beautiful prayer. We just prayed together. May God answer that to the needs of our hearts. Enjoy the service. The devotional is a good lead into the message this morning. Enjoyed the discussion in the book of Job. The book of Job is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. Just uh, reveals so much about God and about ourselves. And uh, there's just so much there. This morning, may you turn with me to the book of Daniel. We live in a very unpredictable world, especially it feels like right now. In the present, many norms that have given some semblances of stability are being shaken. And while there is a lot of geopolitical uncertainty, there is even more uncertainty in the, we could say, the tearing of the social fabric of many nations of the world. I don't remember all the exact details, but I read recently how that the Methodist Church, the national, I guess, basically the U.S., the Methodist churches, I believe, dividing over um, gay marriage and those types of things. I just had to think, what would John and Wesley, John and... um, Uh, What's his brother's name? Charles. Charles. What would John and Charles Wesley say? You stop to think about the huge change, the huge gap, the huge decline. How is it that these things happen? I was reading also last evening, or yeah, I think it was last evening, about a uh, a pastor, he was a, a teacher, Bible teacher that went around and gave seminars. I'm not sure exactly all the topics he normally addressed. One of them related to the book of Daniel. And a fr- uh, there's a man that in central Texas had listened to him a few times and wanted to have him invited to his congregation. And he had emailed him and said that he would really like to have him come to their congregation and give a presentation and some teaching. And um, this this speaker said, this man said, pastor said, well, you need to get your pastor to to give me an invite, and then we could talk about it. Well, he said that that's the problem. He said, "My, my, um, my pastor doesn't like sermons anymore, and this is mainstream Protestant church, mainstream Baptist church, Dallas, or Fort Worth, Texas. He said, like, he usually on Sunday evenings, they, we prefer, our congregation prefers drama and um, uh, bands and entertainment. So he said, I'm going to have to figure out a way to do this. He said, if you could come up with a really interesting title, I might be able to get my pastor to agree to this. So they talked about it. He came up with some nice-sounding title, interesting-sounding title. I think 
The title was The Future of the Late Great Planet Earth, I think was the title. And um, it so happened that the pastor said, yes, he agreed to this. And this man came, this preacher came and started uh, his, well, he was introduced as a man who did, uh, as a teacher that did not um, believe in future prophecies. And he, we got up to the podium, he, he thought, he whispered to the pastor, he said, it must be a misunderstanding. I do believe in future prophecies in the scriptures. He said, do you want me to sit down or? No, just go ahead. So he, he went to, and he, and he was interrupted repeatedly. Uh, he was talking about the book of Daniel, and he said, he, there was no Bible in the audience. So he said, um, and the poor speaker, he didn't know where to start. He was kind of like thrown right off. And he said, well, let's go back and start with Genesis 3.15 once. He said, just open your Bibles to that, and then there was no Bibles. So he said, well, could you maybe go over to the classrooms and bring some Bibles? And there was a bit, he said, we'll sing a few songs and get some Bibles. And I think he led three songs, and they came back and said they, they couldn't find any Bibles. And one of the men in the audience said, we don't use Bibles in our church. I mean, this literally has happened. And so then the pastor finally said, well, I think I have some in my, my study. So he goes over to the pastor's office or study, and he comes back with six Bibles and distributes them among 200 people. And he, so then he said, let's turn to Genesis 3.15. He thought he'd start with the first Messianic prophecy because he believed in prophecy. And he said there was rustling and rustling and rustling, and he said those poor people did not know where to find it. So he, he said, I gave them a little understanding of the books of the Bible and where to find scriptures. Anyway, there's a more to the story, but it's just sad. It's just like, how can people that proclaim Christianity and get to that point? Anyway, I, I just found that astounding. That under the name, you know, to, to say we're Christian and yet have that little knowledge, lack of interest. And um, so that is what I'm saying, that, um, you know, besides the geopolitical shifts, you know, the tearing of the religious world and the, and the fabric of, of, of belief and faith that was once established fact is just is, is, is leaving. Respect and acceptance of a basic Judeo-Christian worldview is rapidly disappearing. You know, and there was a book written some years ago called The Sunset of the Western Church, and I thought of that title in relation to this message. And I think this morning we are seeing the sunset of the Judeo-Christian church in North America and the Western world. We are facing a... Um, I think we are facing a a level of um, of turning away from truth and and that and scripture that we have not seen um, in recent years at all. Now, there's also outright persecution in many parts of the world, and it is rapidly increasing. It is reported that there was more bloodshed of Christians in 2022 than in any previous previous year in recorded history. That's, it's interesting, and if you stop and look at some of those lists, um, it's astounding. In looking forward into the future, 
We may be tempted to wonder how this will all work out for God's people and closer home for our families, our children, our grandchildren. And the devil, I believe this morning, would love to rob us of our faith and our courage. And that's what I guess recently, the last few months, has been on my heart. In thinking of the of a positive message for us today, in our day, in our time. You know, it's easy to be pessimistic. It's easy to look at all the things that go wrong. And we just looked at a few of those. But, you know, but what is the message that God wants us to know? And what is the message that God wants us to have and to pass on? That, um, you know, I, I think of this. Maybe you can say it's my age, but, you know, you look at your... It's so one thing I, I thought about as a father, young father, I think, with young children. But somehow I think of it probably more today when I, you know, watch the grandchildren, you know, and, and see, you know, not only our own biological grandchildren, but I'm talking about in the congregation and in our churches. And, you know, I was there at Payette and there's, you know, a lot of there's children there. And, and you think about this, like, what is the message for the future? What, what do we need to communicate today? And we need to give a positive message to them. We need to have a positive message for our young parents. We need, we need to know what, what the scriptures say and what God wants of us today. Because if we just adopt a pessimistic um, message, as it were, then we're going to succumb, I believe, to the pressures around us. So that's the background, the backdrop of what we wanted to talk about this morning. I think the devil would love, as I said, to rob us of our faith and our courage, to instill some fear in our hearts. You know, many do give in and just drop their faith and join the world and its majority because it may even feel safer, in quotes, than standing against the tide of rejection and cross-bearing. And that's always a threat to us, is just to throw in the towel and say, it's, what's the use? That's what the devil is working hard to get us to do, to wear out the saints of the most high. So now I'd like to uh, think this morning, uh, just draw some thoughts from the book of Daniel. This is, um, there's a lot we could look at. We're trying to, I'm going to try to keep this to several points this morning, probably three or four basic points. And I'd like to probably, um, continue this message next Sunday, the Lord willing. But um, how can we move forward with courage? The title of the message is Courage for the Future in a Troubled World. Courage for the Future in a Troubled World. Now, the book of Daniel, I've come to believe, is a very important book for us to know and understand when we think about the whole setting in which we live and the challenges we face. So turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're not going to read a lot of these verses. You know the stories. We're going to talk about them and pull the truths from them. But we, we understand that the, the book of Daniel, it opens with the um, deportation of the Jews from Jerusalem in 586 B.C., at which time the temple was destroyed and the city was laid waste. There's a little bit of uncertainty about when Daniel actually was taken to Babylon, whether he was taken in the time before this. There was about three times that they took captives to Babylon. 
Now, um, it says here, In the third reign of the king of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem to besiege it. Um, and so this would have been the time that the temple was destroyed. And, but there was times before that because Nebuchadnezzar had put um, Jehoiakim into position there to rule, and he was supposed to be subject, and he had actually promised. He actually made a vow before God that he would submit himself to Nebuchadnezzar. Well, he broke that. And so now the third time, you have Nebuchadnezzar coming against Babylon. He was kind of, you could say, tired of the fight, tired of the situation. It wasn't working. They kept rebelling. And now he came to besiege the city and to destroy it. And um, so anyway, that, that, is, that is the setting here. He took the, um, the best talent and um, the affluence of the southern kingdom of Judah uh, and took it along with him to Babylon. God allowed here Solomon's temple to be destroyed. And the city of Jerusalem was, was laid waste. And um, because he had pleaded with Israel for repentance for their idolatry, but was ignored to the point of rejection. We can just drop back to uh, the Bible records this earlier. Second uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles 36. We notice here Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign. Sorry, about thirty-six eleven. When he began to reign and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem, and he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord his God, and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the chief of the, of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. And then he goes on to talk about, um, well, I'll just read, read, Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and brake down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were, they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years, 70 years. Later in the book of Daniel, you find Daniel read those writings of Jeremiah the prophet and realized that the 70 years were almost finished. That's later in the book. So here we have the, the, the account because of Israel's repeated idolatry it finally crossed the line, and God said, it's enough. He, there was no, no return. Something had to happen. So that's the setting 
of Daniel as a young man being carried to Babylon. Now, some important things to remember about the, the book of Daniel. Um, it is interesting that Daniel and his friends at this time would have been approximately 15 to 18 years old. How many of you young men are between the ages of 15 and 18? Stand, stand up once. All right, thank you. That's how old Daniel was when he was carried to Babylon. Now, um, <clears throat> and we have been captivated many times by the stories in this book. How many enjoy the stories of the book of Daniel? I mean, Daniel Lion's Den, the three Hebrews in the burning fiery furnace, and you know, you go on and on. It's just, it, it captivates us. But remember this, the main reason, the main purpose for the book of Daniel is not about Daniel. You know, we can look at it and say Daniel is the hero of the book of Daniel. I would say no. It's Daniel's God. That's the purpose of the book. If you want to say it, use that term, the hero is God, not Daniel. And so it captivates the interest and the imagination of the youngest child who can understand it, all the way up to us older ones. We all are captivated by it, but to really grasp the meaning of the work of God on behalf of his people, that's what we need to understand. And to me, that's the power of the book. And that's why it is so relevant to our day. And also, the other side, this is why the book of Daniel is one of the most hated books of the Old Testament by liberal Bible scholars and critics. I, I, I knew that a little bit, but I didn't realize until I read more about that, how that um, the book of Daniel is by liberal Bible scholars, critics. It is, it, is a, it is a despised book. They don't know what to do with it. And the reason is, it's not just about a man who was, who was uh, brave and had a lot of courage, but it's because it's about a God that stands up for his people and delivers his people. So now... Thinking of this in relation to, um, let's just read some verses here. We have um, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3, And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, and that they should bring certain of the children of Israel, and the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and then to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs, and so on. And we're not going to read this whole account, but we notice the setting there where Daniel and his three friends were here and now in this situation in Babylon. So they were taken far away from their home in Jerusalem 
to this heathen capital of Babylon. Remember that Babylon was at the zenith of its power and luxury and centralistic society and wealth. If you Later we have that great image, remember, that Nebuchadnezzar built and set up? And what was the head made out of? Gold. That was, Nebuchadnezzar represented the golden head of that image. So Babylon was not only at the zenith of its power as an empire, a world empire at this time, but it was also the riches, or the, the, the richest, and the, there was the most luxury, the most sensual living and pleasure and wealth that has ever been accumulated in a world, world power. You take in that image later, you know, Romans further down, the leg, the thigh, the legs, and the feet with iron mixed with clay. So each world kingdom after Babylon, you have Babylon, you have the Medio Persian, and then you have the Grecian, and then you have the Roman. They all were lesser. They may have, Rome was maybe bigger in its expanse, the geographic uh, area it covered, but it was not richer. Babylon was is still considered the richest in, uh, world empire. It's just a side note. That's why I believe that you go back to the Revelation, and Babylon is used there as a metaphor for the the world secular kingdoms. There you have that um, Revelation seventeen. But it was, at, it was at its zenith of power. It was a very pagan, polytheistic society and culture. Polytheistic means many gods. So they, they served many gods. Polytheistic in its society and culture. You look up and, and look at some of the pictures of what artists have put together from the, as they study the ruins that are there today, you can see that it was... Tremendously, tremendous wealth, tremendous opportunity, tremendous sensual pleasure. Now, <clears throat> these young men were far from home. And now they were thrust into the midst of this culture, this society. They must have wondered many times what God was doing in their lives. You just let your imagination run a little bit. We can look back and read all these stories and we say, you know, this is what God was doing. They were in the middle of it. Just like you and I sometimes in the middle of situations, we can't see the end. We don't know how this is going to work out. We can only see and feel where we're at right now. And so they must have wondered, like you and I maybe wonder sometimes, you know, what is God doing? What is the plan here? Like, where is this, where is this going? It could have seemed that the paganism of Babylon was winning the day over the power of Jehovah God. You know, the temple was burned. The sacred place of worship was gone. Jerusalem was plundered. The city of God. You know, they, they could have wondered, like, what is happening? It seems like paganism is, is ruling the day. And that maybe the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was, could have almost seemed more powerful than, than God in this situation. We, too, are far from home. We, too, are far from home. Our citizenship is in heaven, Scripture says. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I have a home for you. 
We're not there yet. We are far from home. We are in the midst of a present-day Babylon, not unlike what they faced. Here in North America, the luxury, the central pleasure, you know, all the things in many ways that could have been seen there in old Babylon. We too are bombarded with an enemy that is trying to desperately to absorb us into the pagan culture of our society. We've had a lot of acceptance. We still have a lot of acceptance in general in society, but that is shifting and that is changing. And I believe that we're going to see more of that shift. Where um, I think, you know, you and I have seen some of the situations and especially I was thinking of the U.S. there, um, uh, cake shop you know, that refuses to make a cake for a lesbian wedding or whatever it was because of Bible principle and being sued, trying to shut it down. Just people trying to find these opportunities to harass and persecute the people of God. That's on the increase. And we're going to see more of that, I believe. It's part of the downward trend of society. So we are bombarded with an enemy that is trying desperately to force us into their mold, force us into the culture of the pagan society around us. And so in thinking of the future, as I said in the beginning, we may wonder what will be the next gen- what will the next generation need to face? And what can we do today to fortify their lives for the future? And so in the midst of the, the struggles, and you can say the dark, Times in which Daniel and his friends were facing here, there's a very, very positive message. And that's what we want to focus on now. Maybe we at times have felt like the psalmist when he said, for if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? There in Psalm 11.3. Now, what are some of the important things for us to do to understand in facing the challenges of the last days? We're just going to notice three of these. First of all, we, need, we must lead our children to know the God of Daniel. Now, I know this sounds very elementary, but it is foundational. There's no doubt, when you read through the book of Daniel, there's, no, there's not a shadow of a doubt that Daniel was very familiar with the God of Israel. From start of the book to the end of the book. There were, there were things that he understood. He read his scripture. I referred to him reading the prophet Jeremiah. Later in the book, that's recorded. He knew his scripture. He knew his God. He had been taught. He had a spiritual understanding. He did not just make a haphazard guess, I think, or a dare when he said, or when it says there in verse 8, that Daniel purposed in his heart that he was not defiled himself with a portion of the king's meat. That was not a reckless um, dare. That was calculated. That was thought through. He, he, was, he was, by faith, in a sense, putting God to the test in relation to what God had promised. Verse 8. 
And notice that uh, it says in verse 9, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love. Why? Because it shows that Daniel was a young man that had a spiritual insight. He had some spiritual understanding. And he had to exercise, even in a small way, his faith. And so uh, you go down through there, and God performed a miracle for them in relation to what he asked for their diet, that it would not be the extravagance of the king's meat from the king's table, but it would simply be that what, what, that what they had been used to, which was um, vegetables and, and water instead of the wine. We have in verse 16, So Melzar took away the portion of their, of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. So here, again, we have God working on their behalf. We need to show our children, show them the God of Daniel in today's world. Yes, we read the Bible stories and we, sh- we, we teach them, but then we have to make it practical in, in our lives that they can see it manifested in what we do and what we are before God. We show them the God of Daniel in today's world in his answer to prayer. You know, when God answers prayer, point that out to, to your children. Show them uh, how, how that works and how that God does answer our prayers, even though at times it may be different than we have asked, but there is an answer. If there is a God in heaven, there's proof in that. A, a child can understand those things. Another part of this is to show his control over the nations. And that is, again, maybe this is more for the older ones, but to, but to teach them, I mean older young people, but to teach them and to understand this. You know, that it's not just a bunch of people casting ballots in a federal election, but there's the most high rules in the kingdom of, of heaven. He sets up and he takes down. That's the purpose of God. Um, you, you watch that in elections and, you know, I'll, sometimes people say, well, the, the, you know, the trend is for this person to be, to be elected. And then there's this great big surprise. You say, oh, I guess the, I guess the, um, they were wrong. And they got it wrong. And so I guess, you know, this is the way the election went. We as a Christian, we sit back and we look at that and say, no, there's a God in heaven. And he sets up and he takes down. And that's the message in teaching our children that God, the God of heaven, is in control over the nations. There's also to show his power in creation. It's all around us. We can do this and show, you know, um, instill in their imagination the fact of a creator God, also his personal interest in our lives, teaching them to understand that God takes a personal interest in them and, um, and their needs and their desires, also to teach them his goodness, even if we don't always understand, and that certainly is a challenge as well. But so this morning, I think foundational in moving forward into the, the future with confidence is, and with courage, Lead your children to know the God of Daniel. Secondly, don't allow yourself to be robbed of your identity. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of your identity. Again, this is in chapter 1. Why did Daniel draw the line where he did? I don't know if there's any one answer to this. 
But why did he draw the line? You can say, well, he understood the dietary restrictions because of the law of Moses and what they were to eat and not to eat and all of that. It's probably part of it. I don't think that's all of it. Could have drank wine. That was not necessarily forbidden. Maybe you say, well, maybe it was offered to idols. I don't know. But again, the question is, why did Daniel draw the line where he did? All right, let's back up. Nebuchadnezzar, remember, was determined to assimilate these young men into the pagan culture and society of an empire. Now, just think with me a little bit. What would you do? This probably we probably can't imagine this. But if someone was trying to assimilate somebody from a different culture into a, a totally different culture, how would you do it? Nebuchadnezzar was smart. He understood human nature. So what did they do? Well, the most effective way is to do this is to strip someone of their identity. You strip them of their personal identity. So he endeavored to change their appetites by changing their diet. He wanted them to get used to all the luxury and the pleasures of Babylon. So change their appetite. They eat totally different now than what they did before. Another way in which he did was change their name. Can you imagine it? Maybe we can't. But how our name is a part of our personal identity. Uh, that's why people have such a hard time with an alibi because you got to really train your brain to remember your alibi at the right time because you will slip back to the name that you that is part of your personal identity if you're not careful. That's quite a almost a brainwash in itself. Our name is is part of who we are. It's just part of our identity. So you change their name. You give them a, a new name. And by the way, these names were named after heathen gods. That's significant too. You change their language. They were to be taught the language of the Chaldeans. Change their language. You change their clothing, the way they appear. You change their mentors. They went from being instructed probably by a rabbi or priest as a teacher to now be instructed by all the wisdom says. Um, they were to um, wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding this and science that they would have the ability to stand in the king's presence and they were to teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And of course, in all of this is to change their God. Change their God, who they worshipped. Which was all the gods of heathen Babylon. What I find interesting, what is fascinating here is that Daniel understood this threat and knew that if they lost their personal identity, they would not survive the pagan environment they were in. Now, the question is, um, maybe we'll come to this later. 
Where's the rest of the young men that went along to Babylon? There was a lot more than these four. I think as Josephus it says, I think it was like 70 at this time when this happened. So where were the rest of them? Verse 8 here says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He drew a line so that they would not be robbed totally of their identity. If they could not hold a measure of their identity as being from the land of, of Judah, they would have had a very difficult time ever surviving the pagan influences of Babylon. What I find interesting, back there, you go back to, maybe we'll look at it in a later message, but when the handwriting was on the wall and, and Belshazzar saw that, Daniel would have been about 80 years old at the time, and the old queen mother remembered that there was this old prophet, this man of God that had revealed secrets, reminded the king he called for him. Daniel, and, and at that time it was said he's one of those of the captives of Judah. He still retained who he was. That is interesting. 80 years, 80 years old. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now, just think with me a little bit. The Babylon around us is seeking to do the same. The Babylon around us is seeking to do exactly the same thing to the people of God to cause us to lose our identity. Because the devil knows that if he can cause, be the cause of us losing our identity as the people of God, the step of assimilation into the world is very short and will happen very rapidly, very quickly. We all like to be accepted. We like to fit in. We are all tempted to sometimes take the easier path. And so this morning, let's be sure that we are not allowing the pagan society in which we live to rob us of our identity. And that moves right next to the third one. And that is, know your lines and hold them. Know your lines and hold them. You think about this whole story here. And the line that Daniel, in a sense, drew in the sand. Sometimes we call that like a red line. It's like it will not cross this. It's absolute in our minds. We will not cross this line. Daniel staked everything, even his life, on this. When he drew this line and said, I will not do this. He purposed in his heart, this was not going to happen. So really, Daniel was saying, here's a line that I I cannot cross. Here's the line I refuse to cross. Do you think that the great faith stories in the rest of the book of Daniel would would even be there for us to read if he and his friends had not understood this threat to their loss of identity and had not stood firm? Do you think we'd have the rest of the stories in the book of Daniel? I don't think so. And like I said before, where are the faith stories of the other young men from from Judah that were carried away? Where are they? 
I think they were just fell in and were assimilated right into the Babylonian culture and society. And they're lost. They're not there. Lost to a pagan world. There are many snares around us that seek to catch us in the webs of the world. The snares of the world. There is social acceptance. The applause and the acclaim of this world. And this comes very practical, and I've, I've thought of it a few times. You know, and I think we need, need to, to realize that this is going to become more pronounced in the society in which we are living and as time progresses to the end. And that is this whole thing of acceptance. While on the one side, there can be persecution, there can be resistance from a pagan society, but right now, in the society we are living in, you know, our hard, our good, hardworking, honest youth are catching the attention of the world. I see it in the workplace. I see it in the community. I see it in other places. Because the, what the world has produced in our society for youth today, they're irresponsible, and I'm talking about this in general, they're irresponsible, they're not honest. They're not hardworking. They have very few principles. And that, and so the, the young people of the children of God, the young people of the church community are, are outstanding. I hear it in the community. Just in the last few weeks, I could tell you a few stories where this has come up. And while we believe that we want to raise good, honest, hardworking young people, there's a snare in this. One man said recently, talking about a young person, like I just described, not from our particular church, from another group. He said, those are the kind of young people that can go places in the world. He said, with education and in leadership. And I understand where he was coming from. But I'm, only say, I'm just saying that there's a snare in that. Daniel was in a position here later because of his learning and his wisdom and his knowledge. And the king found that many, many times better than the Chaldean young people. Way smarter, way, just, you could trust them. But in that is a snare. And Daniel drew a line in saying, yes, while that may all be true, of all that is expected and of all the accolades I receive, I'm still a Judean Jew. I'm a man of God. I serve the God of Israel. I'm drawing this line and saying. Otherwise, he could have, he later was third in line to the throne he could have maybe taken the throne if he had wanted it. You see the snare to assimilate these young people into the world by the praise, the acclaim, the opportunities that are there. How many times later in the book of Daniel do you read? I think it's there in the account of when 
the handwriting was on the wall. I refer to that, and, and Daniel was called. He was an old man. And they called him before Belshazzar. He said, you know, I promise I'm going to give, you know, a gold chain and, you know, scarlet clothing, robes, and, you know, all this I'm going to give whoever can, you know, interpret this handwriting on the wall. In a sense, basically Daniel said, keep that. Keep your gifts. I don't want it. He brushed off that acclaim. He brushed off that honor. And instead, he pointed to the God of heaven. He said, it's the God of heaven that reveals secrets. It's not me. It's the God of heaven. Another snare of the Babylonian culture in which we live is pleasure-seeking. Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. How easy it to go from what we would say is honest recreation to pleasure-seeking, to something to check ourselves. Daniel kept himself out of the pleasures of Babylon by establishing a line. This wasn't the only line he established. We will look at some more later in the book. Pleasure-seeking. For the sense, or for the sake of pleasure. Maybe those energies sometimes that we would put toward pleasure, we ought to steer toward the building the kingdom of God. And just watch that ratio in our lives, you know, just personal pleasure-seeking versus energy devoted to the kingdom of God. There is so much work to be done in the kingdom. First Peter 4, For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable her- uh, idolatries. That sounds like Babylon, doesn't it? That's, that's a list that would have fit Babylon. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. See, he's pointing out there that they're going to think it's strange because we don't do and chase after the things that that they do. Another is choices in appearance. I know our choices in appearance are not the only part of this battle. And I know we all get tired of the discussion about what we're allowed, what we allow ourselves in clothing or what we choose to wear, and I get tired of talking about it too. But I think it comes into this whole, this whole picture here. If we are going to, to prevent and keep ourselves being assimilated into the Babylonian culture of our day, we're going to have to know our lines and hold them. And I'm afraid sometimes that we may not be aware of this danger of assimilation as much as maybe we ought to. And I want to say that this is not just stubbornly holding on to tired, worn-out tradition. It's not. That's not necessarily what I'm referring to here. But this is one of the lines like Daniel used to safeguard his identity, and not so much for his, not so much for others. This wasn't so much for the king that he says, I purposed in my heart, I'm not going to defile myself. Now, he didn't do it for the king's sake. Why did he do it? He did it for their sake. And you go back to the ribbon of blue principle in the Old Testament that 
God gave to Moses there for Israel, you know, the border of blue and the skirt of their garments. That was not so that people of the society would see them and say, oh, they're a Jew. I mean, that probably worked that way, but that wasn't the primary purpose of it. You go back and you read that, the primary purpose was that ye would remember, in my own words, that you belong to God. What Daniel did here in drawing this line, he knew his line, he drew the line, and it was for them, it was for themselves, that they would remember that they are different and they're going to stay different. History and the scriptures show us that no one group ever survives the onslaught of the world without knowing and holding lines. And I'm not even talking this morning about just, you could say, distinctive. You know, say like this would be a distinctive style of clothing. And there's a certain place for that. But, but the question more is, whether is my appearance Christ-honoring, pointing to Christ, or is it, it world-honoring? Am I honoring Babylon? Am I chasing after the styles of Babylon? Am I attempting to fit into Babylon? Or am I content like Daniel to be that Jewish young man that serves Jehovah God, and I'm going to be different? Because of that. So not so much the distinctive, maybe as God-honoring versus world-honoring. Are we prepared in our minds and hearts to hold on to our identity as a conservative people of God? Remember, the world has a lot of ideas to try to pull us into its clutches. I'm going to close with a poem. Some of you children may have memorized this poem. I'm not sure. I thought of this poem, The Spider and the Fly. It just typifies, I think, the thoughts of this message. Will you walk into my parlor? Said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that ever you did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many curious things to show you when you... When you are there, oh, no, no, said the little fly, to ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty curtains drawn around, and sheets are fine and, fine and thin, and if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly t- tuck you in. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, for I've often heard it said, they never, never wake again who sleep upon your bed. Said the cunning spider to the fly, dear friend, what can I do to prove the warm affection I've always felt for you? I have within my pantry good store of all that's nice. I'm sure you're, you're very welcome. Will you... Please, to take a slice. Oh, no, no, said the little fly. Kind sir, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry, and I do not wish to see. Sweet creature, said the spider. You're witty, and you're wise. 
How handsome are your gauzy wings? How brilliant are your eyes? I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in one moment, dear, I'll, you shall behold yourself. I thank you, gentle sir, she said, but what you're pleased to say. And bidding you good morning now, I'll call another day. The spider turned him round about and went into his den, for well he knew the silly fly would soon come back again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner sly and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out to his door again and merrily did sing, Come hither, hither, pretty fly, with the pearl and silver wing. Your robes are green and purple, there's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamond bright, but mine are Dawes lead. Alas, alas, how very soon this silly little fly, hearing this wily, fluttering, flattering words, came slowly flitting by. With buzzing wings she hung aloft, then near and near drew, thinking only of her brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head. Poor foolish thing, at last, up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up in his winding stair into his dismal den within his little parlor, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear little children, may you this, may you this story read. To idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you ne'er give heed. Unto an evil counselor, close heart and ear and mind, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. Reminded me of the situation that Daniel faced and his friends in Babylon. And it's also the threat of a simulation into the Babylon culture of our day that you and I face. And so in closing this morning, lead your children, lead your children to know the God of Daniel. Don't allow yourself to be robbed of your identity and know your lines and hold them. May God bless us as we find our way with him. I'm just convinced and, I guess, uh, reassured over and over again and looking into the scriptures, the Bible has the answers for us. In every generation, it has the answers for us now. And let's grasp them and use them. Let's kneel to pray. Father, we thank you that there were those who were faithful in their generation, who faithfully stood and drew the lines needed to protect their identity, to keep their relationship with you and not be assimilated into the culture of their day. Father, we know that there are flattering words around us. There are many ways in which we can um, be enticed. And so, Father, we just pray that you would help us to be faithful and understand the uh, not only the snares around us, but understand thy great power and your ability to, to redeem us and to save us and to preserve us as a faithful people. And so this morning we again thank you for your blessings. We also ask for your wisdom, your grace and mercy going forward in our lives that we would each be faithful. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. <coughs>